Thank you, Justin. It's a great joy to be here with you this morning. Uh, my wife and I are thrilled to now be Nashvillians and uh, for me to be at Belmont uh, serving as president. Uh, Nashville is actually my birthplace, although we moved from here uh, when I was a young child, so I don't have many long-standing memories, though I also discovered after my appointment was announced that my paternal grandmother attended Ward Belmont, Belmont's predecessor institution, back in 1921 and 22. So it feels like uh, a, a real return home in a significant way. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, descend your Holy Spirit upon us gathered here. Speak through me, if necessary, in spite of me, and always beyond me, that your word might be heard by your people this day. Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'm a lifelong Chicago Cubs fan, which means that uh, this is rather late for us already to be saying wait till next year. Usually we start that chant about opening day or the second day. It's been a futile last century, except for one good year in 2016. But there's one team that's even more hapless than my beloved Chicago Cubs. It's the one that was managed for many years by Charlie Brown. And the reason they were even more hapless was not only was Charlie Brown the manager, he was the star pitcher, and he had Lucy as his star outfielder who was more interested in butterflies than baseball. But one year on opening day, Lucy comes up to Charlie Brown. She says, this year it's going to be different, manager. I'm committed to catching everything hit my way. You can count on me. And a big grin comes across Charlie Brown's face. He's so happy. He gets on the mound, he throws the first pitch, the batter swings, a high fly ball comes out to center field, and Lucy is in perfect position as the ball starts its descent. And then in the next frame, you see it hit her on the head, fall to the ground, another home run, another losing season. Lucy brings the ball all the way into the pitcher's mound. And as she starts to hand it to Charlie Brown, she says, I'm sorry, manager, I really am. I wanted it to be different. I really did. But you see, as the ball started to come down, I started to think about all those other times and I lost concentration. She says to him, I'm sorry, manager. I guess you could say the past got in my eyes. The past got in my eyes. Isn't that what haunts us when we think about changing our behavior, when we think about finding new life, when we think about doing something differently? We get all worked up and we make resolutions. And then we think about all those other times. Maybe it's on New Year's Eve and you're setting New Year's resolutions, ones that you're sure to keep at least maybe until January 10th. Or maybe it's at the beginning of Lent and you think, well, maybe I can do it for 50 days. Or maybe it's on a Sunday morning, you hear something at church and you say, this week's going to be different. And then by Sunday afternoon or Monday morning, it's back to the old habits. Oh, it's so easy for the past to get in our eyes. We know what we ought to do. As Paul says in Romans 7, the good I would do, I do not. And the evil I would not do, I do. And oh, we trap ourselves, the past, it gets in our eyes and our memories haunt us and they overwhelm us. Too often, our image of ourselves is that we're brains on sticks. 
Education doesn't help with that, particularly higher education. We act as if all we are are thinking beings and talking beings. We don't pay attention to all the emotions and the ways in which that shapes us and the ways in which that haunts our memories and the ways in which that enables the past to get in our eyes. Sometimes we think of ourselves as primarily dominated by reason and emotions can just get in the way on occasion. There are analogies drawn between an elephant and a rider. And and in education, we tend to think of reason as the elephant and emotion as the rider. And the rider can direct the reason in some ways, but most of the time it's reason that's going to run things because it's a lot bigger than the rider. But in reality, it's the other way around. The emotions are the elephant and reason is the rider. And the rider can do some things when the emotions are calm and passive. But you know, when the... When the elephant gets upset, reason's going to be hanging on for dear life. I don't know if any of you all have ever been around an elephant when they're mad. It ain't a pretty sight. My wife Susan and I were in South Africa on a safari. and We're in our Jeep and we're having a great time and we're just sitting around and the driver says, listen, the elephants are coming. You can't really, it's not like they're stomping. They actually have very gentle uh, footprints and paths because they're, their hooves are so gentle and padded, you can hear the twigs break. And so he said, the elephants, they're coming. And so we were really quiet listening. And then all of a sudden, the, the, our guide said, oh no, hold on. We thought, what's up? And then we looked behind us. Well, it turns out we'd gotten between a mama elephant and her baby. You don't ever want to be between a mama and her baby, whatever species. And that elephant started on a rampage and was racing behind us. And Susan and I were holding on for dear life with great gratitude, both that the Jeep had a lot of pickup and that there was a rifle in the front seat. We managed to escape, but I thought that that elephant is, if there was somebody on top of that elephant, he'd have been holding on for dear life and maybe not very successfully. Well, isn't that what happens with us, with our emotions? When the past gets in our eyes, when we get all worked up, We may think, I want it to be different, but it doesn't work that way. In our passage from Ephesians, you see this stark contrast reminding us of the power of our emotions and when things get out of whack. And we get a contrast that says, don't be drunk with wine for that's debauchery, but be filled with the spirit. It's a contrast between being filled with spirits with a small s and the spirit with a capital S. Both of them are ways that call us out of ourselves, call us beyond ourselves, one into destructiveness and the other into faithfulness. You know the statistics about the high percentage, 70 to 80% of all those who are in prison are there for something that was alcohol or drug related. The destructiveness that comes from intoxication and yet on the contrast, there's a faithful intoxication What Paul's suggesting here in chapter 5 is that there's a way of being called out of ourselves that is life-giving, a faithful intoxication. It's singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Because you see, music touches our souls in deep and powerful ways. St. Augustine said, anyone who sings prays twice. Because it's the words and the music that begin to work on us. 
The Psalms have such an extraordinary range. All 150 song, Psalms touch every part of our life, anger and depression and anxiety and fear, and joy and praise and hope and love. The full gamut of human emotions are part of how our lives are lived, no matter what your circumstances. And so there's always a way in which the Psalms can open us up and call us out of ourselves into the praise of God. Have you ever been in one of those times when you're just filled with fear, or you're angry, or you're depressed, or you're so wrapped up, and all of a sudden you just feel yourself shrinking and shriveling? The Psalms find ways and give words to call us out of ourselves into the praise of God. Hymns do the same kind of thing. The range of expressions in the hymns have such power for our lives. And then this ambiguous term, spiritual song. Sometimes we think that a spiritual song has to just be about Jesus or else it's not really spiritual. And yet I would suggest that those spiritual songs are like the psalms running the full gamuts of human emotion. One of the joys of being in Nashville and at Belmont is I'm learning all sorts of people who are really talented in music. One of them is a Belmont grad named Ashley Gorley, who's won the ASCAP Country Songwriter of the Year, eight straight years running. He's in his early 40s, and he's already got more than 50 number one hits. When we were together and I was talking to him, he wanted to talk about his faith and about Christian formation. I wanted to talk about music. And after he's talking about his faith and how central it is to his life, I said, why do you write secular country songs? He said, because they're what is really raw and real about human life. And if we can't acknowledge that, we won't really form our faith well. I thought, oh, isn't that beautiful? There's something about that kind of earthiness and that acknowledgement that we're not always thinking our best thoughts. We're not always nice and kind. Sometimes, like the Psalms, we're really ticked off. And we're wondering why those enemies are getting ahead of us. And why isn't God showing me a clearer path. Those spiritual songs are about giving voice to who we are in all of our complexity. And yet, like Augustine, the music enables us to pray twice because sometimes it's the words and sometimes it's the music. I've been listening to a lot of Nashville music since I've been moving here. And now some of the songs by people I've been privileged to get acquainted with have come to the top of my playlist and I've, I've confessed this to some people around Belmont. It's a little shaky because if they ever hear me listening to it, they're going to wonder what the meeting was right before it. When I come out of meetings that were really bad or I'm just in a funk or I'm really grumpy about something, I got a couple songs I go to because I know they'll recenter me. They'll calm me down. They'll take me from just being all wrapped up in myself and focused again in Christ. One of those is... C.C. Winan's new song, The Goodness of God. If you haven't heard it, play it this afternoon. It'll call you out of yourself. Oh, I will sing, she says, of the goodness of God because you have led me through the fire. There's another side to the fire. It's hard to feel that when you're in the middle of it. But she says, you have led me through the fire. You have never failed me. I have called you father. I've called you friend. Oh, I will sing of the goodness of God. There's another song that Michael W. Smith and Carrie Underwood sing together. It's on Michael W. Smith's Christmas album. It's called All Is Well. 
And all it takes for me is to hear Carrie in that perfect soprano voice. The first three words, there's some music leading up to it, and then she just sings, all is well. It's all I need to hear. No matter what has gone before, it reminds me. It's a song about the birth of Christ. God loving the world so much that he sent his only son to be among us. All is well. All of a sudden you think, you know, did I need to get that wrapped up in that argument? Did I really need to get that irritated at that person? Do I need to be in this much of a funk? Think about it. We've been living for the last 18 months in ways that the past can get in our eyes. We've been dealing with multiple pandemics. And COVID may ratchet up this fall with the Delta variant. And so we're getting on our heels again and getting anxious rather than being focused on God. We're getting preoccupied in ways that weigh us down. But it's not only COVID, it's also the heightened attention to racial injustice in the wake of George Floyd. It's the economic disruptions and the loss of jobs. It's the mental health challenges that all of us have been feeling that intensified previous challenges where we've been dealing with Blur's Day where it was hard to remember what day it was because we just wake up and get on Zoom for the day. And all of those pandemics coming together and it'd be so easy to just get into a reactive mode or into a grumpy spirit intensifying the political fracturing and polarization that's been dividing families and communities and friends. Rather than being centered, we've tried to talk our way and think our way into a different place. When what we really need to be doing is singing hymns and psalms and spiritual songs. Singing and making melodies to the Lord. Melodies that have at their heart love. Love of neighbor, love of God, even love of enemies because that's what Jesus is all about. Making melodies of seeing one another in the image and likeness of God. Because you know, if you see others in the image and likeness of God, you're likely to treat them very differently than if you just treat them as an irritating annoyance. But that's what Christ calls us to. And music has a way of inspiring that sense of faithful living. My wife and I were in Florida over the 4th of July with family, right as Elsa came through, which really cut into beach time. So we used the time to watch Ken Burns' documentary on the history of country music. All eight episodes, two hours each. Didn't have anything else to do if you're stuck indoors at the beach. One of the striking things about that documentary is he wove the history of country music through Nashville for the better part of a century was how the song... Will the circle be unbroken, wove through all of country music from the 1930s to the 2000s? It's interesting. I'd always heard the song as let the circle be unbroken. And both of those words seem to speak into our time. Will the circle be unbroken? Will the center hold? Can we recenter our lives in Christ in ways that we weave the social fabric and hold us all together? It's both a question, will the circle be unbroken? And it's also a commitment that we're called to make to let the circle be unbroken, to let Christ call us out of ourselves into the praise of God in ways that will bind us together in love and joy, regardless of what's going on in the world. 
September 11th, 2001. The planes crashed into the towers. I was at a breakfast meeting and I could see the, the TV off in the background. I was just watching kind of disoriented by what I was seeing, thinking it was a bad movie that was on, and then realized that it was actually real. I was dean of Duke Divinity School at the time, and so I thought, well, we better call a prayer service. It was about 9.30 when I called the prayer service. I called it for noon because I figured I needed a couple hours to figure out what the heck we were going to do during the prayer service. I didn't have very many good ideas, except I did have the sense to call two talented, godly women to my office. One was a professor of Old Testament named Ellen Davis. The other was my wife, Susan, uh, who was an administrator in the Divinity School. Both of them are a lot closer to God than I am, so I figured they could help. So I called them into the office. I said, you got any ideas? Susan, right out of the gate, said, yep, let's sing Great is Thy Faithfulness. I thought, that doesn't sound right. I'm pretty grumpy. I don't want to sing something like that. She said, Greg, it's from Lamentations 3. She was raised Bible, Baptist with Bible sword drills, so she knows all that stuff. And I was like, oh, yeah, right. Of course, I knew that. She started quoting the hymn, and all of a sudden, the words just jumped out. I thought, oh, that will sound good. Let's start with that. And then Ellen said, and then let's use Psalm 46. I looked at her. She assumed I knew what she was talking about. She said, you know, the last stanza. I nodded my head, waiting for her to share with me the last stanza. She didn't. So I got up and went and found a Bible in the office. I think she was reassured that the dean had a Bible in his office. I opened it up, and there it was, and it spoke so powerfully. The last stanza begins, wake up, God. Why are you sleeping? Wake up and execute your fierce justice. And I thought, oh, wow, that's perfect for today. So at noon, we went up, and the opening hymn was, Great is thy faithfulness, and the roof of the chapel was about to explode. The people were giving voice to that in such powerful ways. And then Psalm 46, and we had the full range of emotions of, Great is thy faithfulness, God, wake up, why are you sleeping? Oh, it was powerful. I remembered that day, just a few months ago, as I was watching the Academy of Country Music Awards, when Carrie Underwood comes out to an empty Ryman auditorium because of COVID, nobody was there. She starts singing, Great is Thy Faithfulness. And then CeCe Winans comes out and they start doing a duet. And you can see the sparkle in their eyes and the joy in their faces and the color in their cheeks as they're singing to each other. I got to have lunch with Cece, and I said, I said, that was amazing. It just looked like y'all were having fun, and we're so filled with joy. And she said, oh, yeah, Carrie said it was like being back in church in Oklahoma. The joy there on a secular TV show. At the end of it, Cece said, the producer turned and said, there was the showstopper. Why? Because it was a way of bringing us together a way of calling us out of ourselves into the praise of God, a way of lifting us out of ourselves into a faithful intoxication, a way of saying the circle is unbroken. Let's hold it all together. That praise, that joy. We can't afford to let the past get in our eyes, for when we do, we're tempted toward destruction, self and other and letting things fall apart. 
when we're called to let the circle be unbroken, to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord. As we go forth from this place, my question to you is, what will the melody of your life sound like?